ongoing dialogue about flexible work versus remote versus hybrid is going to continue to dominate the landscape for the foreseeable future because many organizations are just fundamentally struggling through it. And I think part of that struggle is tied up in this idea that they aren't able to step out of the way the work was done before and how the work was organized into a job. I'm John Fitzgerald, host of the Cord Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hi, everybody, and you're welcome back to our autumn series of the Cord. And our topic today is work without jobs. And the topic is brought to us by my guest today, Raven Jesu Thansen who is the global leader of Mercer's Global Transformation Services and the co-author of his latest best-selling book, Work Without Jobs. Raven is a global thought leader, futurist, and recognized as one of the top eight future of work influencers by Tech News. Raven is also a regular presenter at the World Economic Forum's annual meetings in Davos and a member of the Forum's Steering Committee on Work and Employment. Raven was also an advisor and featured prominently on PBS's widely acclaimed TV documentary series, The Future of Work. He's the author of many books in his field and his best-selling book with John Bedreau is Work Without Jobs, How to Reboot Your Organization's Work Operating System. And uh, that's just recently released through MIT Press and a copy of the book is in my hand. I've been leafing through it and... Having Rabin on the show, I believe, following up from the podcast we did with Joan Hodgins on Diageo's approach to building talent within their global organization will really give us some great insights into many case studies that are featured in the book. And that's what made the book really relevant for me was to be able to go in and see the many practical examples. Before we start, I always introduce people to find out a little bit more about their early career influences. And uh, I'd be interested in your early career influences, Raven, and tell us a little bit more about your younger formative years and what shaped maybe your career today and where you've ended up. Well, thank you, John. It's uh, lovely to be here with you. So I think my entire life has been one of uh, sort of change and reinvention. So I was born in Malaysia. I grew up in the UK, but I've lived in the United States for you know the better part of 30 years now. And so right through life, just went through many different changes, you know, so I feel quite at home, pretty much most places around the world. I think at an early age, if you've had that sort of change, you become a little more adept culturally at, you know, sort of assimilating. And and I think, you know, that sort of carried through in my work. I like to say I'm a retreaded finance guy. I'm a chartered financial analyst. I was a former strategy consultant who found his way into human resources and executive pay and Right through my career, you know, I've just had the opportunity to keep reinventing myself, to push the boundaries of the work that I do. And uh, I've been blessed in, you know, with my employers with just a lot of intellectual freedom to be able to sort of ask questions, you know, be provocative and push the envelope with my clients. In addition to my wonderful colleagues, I think my clients have been my greatest blessing. Fantastic. And reinvention is such a theme in your book. And uh, in our pre-talk, I've just learned that we have something in common. My mother was a Roscommon woman and your wife is a Roscommon woman. So you never know how small the world is. So just uh, to pick up then on the book and why the book, why now, 
And can you share some of the context behind your thinking in publishing the book at this time? Yeah, absolutely. So this book, John, as you alluded to, is my fourth. I've been really privileged to have written all four with my co-author and good friend, John Boudreaux. And this book really builds on our last two books. So our second book together was called Lead the Work, Navigating a World Beyond Employment. And the third book was Reinventing Jobs, a four-step approach for combining automation and talent, which is published by the Harvard Business Review Press. And Lead the Work explored how work was moving beyond the organizational boundary, beyond the uh, confines of employment, while Reinventing Jobs looked at how do we get the best combinations of AI, robotics, and the talent in our organizations. Now, both books provided leaders with frameworks for decision-making and you know, many, many case studies and examples. But at the heart of both of the books was the principle and this big idea of work deconstruction as a critical foundation for increasing the agility of the organization to respond to threats like the pandemic, the opportunities from digitalization and automation. And what we tried to do with Work Without Jobs was really to delve into deconstruction and present it as that fundamental element of a new work operating system that we think is going to be essential for organizations who are looking to stay relevant in this new world of work. Yeah, as I leaf through the book, that word deconstruction, I kept visualizing work as a construction site that's continually <laughs> be, being changed and adapted. And we don't know what we're going to walk into the next day or even if we're going to walk into our work anymore, which obviously comes up as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, you talk about why we need a new work operating system. So can you kind of explain that new work operating system in simple terms for our listeners and maybe firstly explain the traditional system and where you see us going now? Yeah, absolutely. So the traditional system of work is indexed and based on this foundation of work being done in jobs. It's what we've had in place for the better part of the last 130 years. And if you step back for a moment and think about everything that, you know, we do in HR or finance or IT, that notion of the job is that fundamental building block. It's the basis through which we hire people, the basis through which we connect people to work, through which they get developed and grown and rewarded, etc. If you think of our finance and accounting systems, it's that job is the basis through which every unit of cost and value is sort of determined. You know, jobs get aggregated into job families, those job families into functions, those functions into organizations. And it's the same thing as well with technology and IT, because the job is that fundamental currency for work. John and I talk about, and we try to illustrate, A, why the job was becoming increasingly unfit for purpose, but B, why this pivot towards the fundamental tasks and activities and the underlying skills and capabilities are a much better currency for this new world of work because of the agility it affords, because of the reduced frictional cost associated with work, and as important, I think, because of the opportunity for a much more inclusive future of work than the one we've traditionally had for the last 130 years or so. Now, I do want to say, up front, John, you know, we're not saying that jobs are going to go away. Sometimes accused that, oh, this title is clickbait because it's so provocative. You know, far from it. I think what we were trying to do with this title was point to the growing inability of this existing work operating system and that one-to-one -one relationship between 
job holders, jobs, and, and degrees, if you will, because it's the degree is the primary marker of capability to step into a job, to actually keep up with this world of work. And what we tried to do with this book was to illustrate you know, what this new work operating system would look like, one that was based on the fundamental tasks or the elemental tasks mm-hmm. and the skills and capabilities and illustrate the many organizations that are on this journey to transforming work. Yeah, it's very much a picture of like Lego taking all the pieces out and putting them back in, in different shapes as we go. And you talk about in that new work operating system, four key principles. Can you share those with us, please? Yes, absolutely happy to. So the first of those is, as I've sort of alluded to a second ago, is to start with the work. You know, what are the current and future tasks and activities as opposed to how we organize the work today, which is in, you know, jobs and functions. So starting off with the element, fundamental activities and transcending that legacy of jobs. The second is looking to achieve the optimal combinations of humans and automation, as you would have seen in chapter two and Chapter two builds off our previous book, Reinventing Jobs. What we show is that when you lead with the work, you arrive at fundamentally much better outcomes than you would do if you just led with the technology, because you start to see a much more nuanced set of relationships. You see where human endeavor is more optimally substituted by automation, where the critical thinking, the creativity, the empathy, where that those truly human skills can be augmented by automation. And you also see where the presence of automation can transform the work or create the space for new human work. So that's the second principle. The third is once you've figured out what the optimal combinations of humans and automation is, what's the best way to connect people to work? You know, what's the full array of human work engagements? Should it be a job? Increasingly, that's less and less the answer. Should it be employees in an agile talent pool, you know, connected to work through an internal talent marketplace? Should it be a gig worker, freelancer, an alliance partner, an outsourcer? You know, what's the optimal way to connect people to work? And then lastly, asking the question of how do we consistently and continuously take the frictional cost of work out of play by enabling talent to flow to work versus being limited in fixed and traditional jobs? So starting to build in that mindset of perpetual reinvention of work. I'm sure lots of people would love the concept of flowing to work. And, (laughs) you know, you mentioned there the job will no longer be the primary mechanism for connecting people to work. And when I work with organizations, I continually see people who are really busy, their heads down, they haven't enough time in the day. So... I think our conversation is important for people to take that heads up approach to how their organization is changing. And and you give a great example of the iPhone, for example, in in your book. You might just share that because I think that was a great example of, you know, that stuff is changing, but we're not often seeing it. Yeah, I must give my co-author, John, the credit for that. You know, if you think back to our cell phones, right? You know, I used to have a Motorola flip phone back in 1997 or something like that. And I had that phone for about 10 years. For 10 years, that phone was completely static. It dropped calls with as much frequency in 2007 as it did in 1997. The phone didn't change. I didn't really change. And then in 2007, the iPhone came about. And what we then started to get used to was 
this notion of perpetual obsolescence. Because every day that iPhone has an app that's upgrading in the background. Every so often you need to upgrade the operating system. And if you're like my children, you know, you have to get a new phone. The hardware has to be upgraded every year or every two years. But if you think about it, we now have grown to not only accommodate, but demand that perpetual obsolescence. You know, we demand the latest features. And I think just as the iPhone continuously renders itself obsolete and reinvents itself, technology is asking the same question of us. The pace of change and the quantum of change are just far too great for us to think that we can ever be static. And I think that's the fundamental challenge for each of us as individuals, as well as each of us, you know, in leading and working in organizations. How are we going to sort of continuously reinvent ourselves because we too are being perpetually rendered obsolete? You know, the brain is lazy and we like our habits and our structures and our formats of doing things. You know, we, we've obviously seen for the last two and a half years now that the huge amount of change we've all been through, which I'm sure if you were to put an organization change project in place two years before that without the pandemic, we wouldn't have seen anything like the commitment to the change that has been achieved in the last few years. Absolutely. So you break down the book into seven key elements and you share some great case studies in the book. The first element you talk about is work is deconstructed from jobs to tasks and projects. So can you share some live examples and making that real for us and our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the example that we used to illustrate that first element was work that we did with uh, Genentech. Genentech is a subsidiary of the Roche company and an incredibly progressive organization based in San Francisco. It was just such a pleasure working with you know, that progressive leadership team. But in April of 2020, in the middle of this pandemic, they sort of really understood where work was going and this idea of flexibility. And the idea was to A, recognize that there are opportunities for flexibility in where work is done, how it's done, when it's done, but there are these opportunities in all jobs. And how do we, through the principle and idea of deconstruction, identify the optimal sort of opportunities for flexibility, whether that's for a manufacturing employee, a distribution employee, an HR employee, you know, what are the options for flexibility so that we can start to meet more and more talent on their terms and inject flexibility into how we get the work done and also thus create a culture where we can access talent much more easily. So that was a, you know, yeah. just a great opportunity for us to tell that story. We're definitely seeing that now with the talent attraction and people now being more demanding what they want. You know, talent are demanding the flexibility and organizations who don't offer that are missing out on talent. I don't know if you're seeing anything even since you published the book that has changed in that space. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do think, John, this ongoing dialogue about flexible work versus remote versus hybrid is going to continue to dominate the landscape for the foreseeable future because many organizations are just fundamentally struggling through it. And I think part of that struggle is tied up in this idea that they aren't able to step out of the way the work was done before yeah. and how the work was organized into a job. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge. 
the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonics.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. And I think we've got to be perpetually learning as we go on this journey and that we're not going to get things right. We've got to try stuff and we've got to go with this test and learn approach rather than think we're going to get it perfectly right. And I'm definitely seeing that in our interventions with organizations. So very interesting. So the second one you talked about, which I love, is work as optimizing human strengths and automated tasks. And obviously, this speaks to the whole concept of people maybe being fearful that their Mm -hmm. their jobs are going to be gone. And you mentioning there things like empathy and, you know, critical thinking that are so required in the future of work. So have you a case study to explain some of that principle? Yeah, absolutely. So the case we used there was of DHL. Because DHL has been incredibly thoughtful about its use of automation and robotics, continuously experimenting with new forms of robotics, but also being quite nuanced, as I described it earlier, in understanding, you know, where is the highly repetitive rules-based work that could be substituted by automation? Where are there those truly human skills where some form of automation could make the person almost super productive in their work by augmenting those strengths they have? And then where does automation create space for new human work, new opportunities to express creativity, critical thinking, et cetera. So we really like the DHL example because it was not sort of a one and done. It was just this recognition that automation is going to keep advancing. It's incumbent on us to keep experimenting, keep trying new types of automation and then deploying them you know, to the rest of our facilities as automation matures. It strikes me that trust is hugely important when you're going on a change program at an organization like that, because, you know, people can see their previous work being automated away and are fearful that they don't have the ability to keep up or to upskill or to reskill. Was there any resistance in any of your projects to that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, John. You know, the thing that we've always done in the work that we've done with our clients is to ensure that the talent has a voice in the process because nobody knows the work better than the people who are doing it, you know, despite what line managers and senior leaders might think. And so having their voice in the redesign work is really important. But people have to both have the space to make a difference. They have to have an incentive to make a difference and they have to feel safe in contributing. And so As people participate in these efforts, you know, there is often an incentive plan tied with it, as well as the the promise that, you know what, we want you to sort of help us redesign the work. In some cases, you know, companies being quite explicit and saying, you won't be rendered obsolete because of that. We promise you, we'll give you the space to either reskill or to move into an alternative role as we redesign the work to get to, you know, the most optimal use of automation. I think that's such an important point because many times we see that the report is written and the what to be done with change is is clearly mapped out, but how to go on that journey over a two to three year time frame or whatever is the real challenging work when you're working closely with people. And I love that idea of talent having a voice and co-creation of the future rather than it's being done to you, if that makes sense. The third one you talk about is boundaryless and democratized work ecosystem. So expand on that for me, please. Yeah. So one, the example we had there was of this really interesting insurance company that 
created kind of a virtual cloud-based organization for all of its digital talent. But the idea being that people would connect to work based on the activities and projects, and they would connect based on the skills they had. So instead of the work being done by someone in a particular job family, where there was it was incredibly inefficient and unproductive, and particularly for skills like data science, digital skills that are required across the organization. Having a matching of skills to work is a much more productive way of getting the work done. So in this case, they started off with employees doing the work, but they weren't in jobs. And over time, they expanded that pool to not just be employees, but to be gig workers and others who could engage with the work on an as-needed basis. And I know that Joan Hodgson's talked in Diageo about sharing workers with different organizations. I don't know if you came across that in your work, that they had some consultancy firms who were sharing their people with the organization and similarly going the other way. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I mentioned our second book, John, you know, Lead the Work, Navigating a World Beyond Employment. One of the things we did was a case study in that book was we orchestrated an ecosystem of a technology company, an insurance company, and another financial services organization, all of which had unique skill needs. And we enabled the sharing of talent within that closed, non-competitive ecosystem as a way of you know, each company meeting its own needs without having to go out and develop a value proposition for talent that maybe in the past never really you know, tried to hire before, but now needed those skills. Yeah, really good. And then the fourth one was work as a whole person. We deconstructed capabilities and skills. Yeah. So this goes back to, you know, one of the principles that I was talking about, which is thinking beyond that one-to-one relationship between a person and a position to the many-to-many between that unique bundle of skills and capabilities that is you versus me, John, the many different ways in which we could express those skills in how we, in different types of work we could take on. The example for this is one I absolutely love, and this was the capstone case in the book, as you may have seen. It's work that Providence Health System in the United States did to deconstruct the work of nurses during the pandemic when there was such a premium placed on the time and skills of nurses, but to deconstruct the work so that they could talent could flow to the top of their license. They could do the thing that was valued the most, the reason they got into this profession, And then the other activities that were lower down on the license, if you will, could be redeployed either to automation or to talent in other roles where the supply of talent might be much more plentiful. Fantastic. And the the fifth is perpetual reinvention of tasks and projects. And you probably touched on that a little bit already. The sixth one, I think, was the one on the Unilever case study, which was work as collaborative hubs of teams with an aligned purpose. And uh, I love this particular case study myself. So, so you might expand on that. Yeah, yeah. So we use Unilever as an example because they are such a purpose-driven organization. And um, I've had the privilege of working with them for the better part of the last six years on their framework for the future of work. And the idea was to sort of inject this notion of, you know, into the organization how do we keep reinventing work and progressively driving more and more flexibility and agility so that talent can connect to work through a whole variety of different ways while continuously getting the signals as to how they need to reinvent themselves, ensure their continued relevance for work. It's fascinating to see how 
the work that was done with them way back when has translated into their Uflex program, which enables retirees and others to connect to work increasingly on their terms, as opposed to being forced to fit a company's one-size-fits-all solution. And I love their purpose-led future fit program. And, you know, when I read that, I looked at work that we do in helping people to plan their careers in organizations. And, you know, we talk about four different ways to plan your career. And one of them is enrich your job and explore lateral opportunities is the second, elevate up and an exit is obviously another one as well, which we don't mention when we are working with organizations because organizations are fearful of, oh my God, don't educate people to exit this organization. And there was two options in this Unilever model. That there was the upskill, reskill internally, reskill externally and beyond. That was really fascinating for me to see that the organization was being so open with their people. And I think there's a key message here that needs to come out maybe from your work that maybe you could speak to leaders about the approach that they took. Yeah. You're right, John, because I think we've all worked for organizations in the past where, you know, every departure was viewed as almost a personal betrayal <laughs> by the manager. And You, you stole know, the, my IP. Yeah, right. And I think the organizations that really get it recognize that, you know, people are going to be here for a season. You know, let's make the work, let's make the opportunity, let's make the proposition as attractive as possible for all their seasons so that we can meet them on their terms and recognize that at various points, people may go in different directions and, you know, our needs as a company might change as well. But, you know, if we can keep reinventing, if we can keep the relationship with the talent when they join and when they leave and then everything, you know, before or after is a complete disconnect versus how do we maintain as many relationships as possible and ensure that when the time's right, you have access to the skills you need and that person has access to an organization that they feel committed to. As one person said to me once in an organization, the best career conversations I've had in my career have been with recruitment agencies. Really interesting perspective. It's as if we're still living in this closed world that some organizations still think. Some last questions then around I suppose for this new work operating system, it has implications for how organizations are structured. And what steps can organizations take now to start preparing for this work operating system that you speak about? I think there are a number of things they can do to sort of keep experimenting. And, you know, one is Big Bang never works, right? And the companies that we see consistently being successful are the ones who continuously experiment. They look for pilots, they look for opportunities, you know, they look for triggers where, you know, I can't find enough talent with the right skills. I've got a bottleneck in a process. We've got a fundamental change in the operating model. Things that maybe suggest that the old way of getting things done may not be optimal, where there's an opportunity to do something new and try and experiment. So I think rapid prototyping learning from the prototyping you know we illustrated that with the retail distribution organization that was the running case study right through the book and bringing along all of their leaders on this journey so people can see what the successes are what the learnings are and the thing about prototyping is that it's not about success or failure it's really about learning right through and ensuring you've got a process to keep testing and experimenting and documenting your 
lessons learned and translating them across the organization, I think is absolutely essential for making this work operating system actually be something that's real. Yeah, very good. And when we go down from the organization then to leaders who are leading in these organizations, when you introduce these type of concepts to them, there are fixed structures and hierarchies and they've worked hard to maybe where they've got to in life. And they've got maybe something to lose as a result of all of this restructuring and change, even though it mightn't be the big bang, but they might be able to look a couple of years down the road and say, well, what's the opportunity for me here? Have you seen fear and trepidation? And what are your experiences in dealing with leaders in bringing them on this journey? Oh, yeah, John, you're absolutely right. You know, we lay out, as you saw in the book, the five big changes that are going to be asked of leaders. And there certainly is much trepidation because, you know, I worked at this for 30 years to get to the position I'm in. And now you're telling me the rules are all changing. But there is really a need for some change. And You know, the companies we've worked with who've done this well have been thoughtful about, you know, how do we build the business case so leaders see why they need to change? How do we ensure that they have the assets and resources to be able to sort of affect that change? And at the same time, ensure that they're being supported in the change with the right support. They have the incentives to actually want to operate fundamentally differently. And I think the most important thing, John, is space you know, space for learning in the flow of work. And I increasingly say to my clients, there also needs to be space for well-being in the flow of work. This false narrative that we've had for years about work-life balance, it truly is showing itself to be false. And, you know, the progressive organizations recognize that the quantum of learning, the quantum of change that people have to deal with requires that well-being and space for well-being and space for learning just be part of how we design work. Yeah, I'm reminded of a quote from a leader in one of our earliest podcast interviews when they were talking about, you know, getting time and space. She was interviewing a leader and they quoted back, I'm paid for my perspective. If I'm always on, I have no perspective. I think that's so wise. People can actually see that. But it's always the challenge when you're going into organizations that they want it squeezed in to do stuff as fast as possible. We're still in that mindset, I think, and we need to create that space. And then the big challenge for HR and lots of HR people listen to the podcast here, you know, legacy systems, traditional ways of pay and reward. Any advice for how we shift these legacy structures and systems? to a new operating system that you speak about for HR? Yeah, absolutely. John, as you know, there's been a massive movement towards skill-based pay the last few years. And we illustrate how that movement, you know, can best be aligned with this new work operating system because it really does because you're rewarding people based on the skills and capabilities they have as opposed to necessarily the job they sit in. That is a pretty significant transition, and we illustrate that with some examples. But I think it's also about striking the right balance between the capacity to contribute and the actual contribution. So as more and more work gets done in constructs beyond jobs, in projects and assignments and gigs, you know, our ability to sort of actually measure those outputs increases exponentially. And giving people a stake in that output, I think, is equally important you know, with project-based incentives and the like. And so I think, you know, as the currency of work changes, how compensation and benefits now need to change to ensure that 
People are being rewarded for continuing to develop themselves, are being rewarded for the expression of their skills, and have benefits that sort of keep them as part of a community, as opposed to benefits that are tie them to inflexibly to an organization. I could talk to you for ages, Raven. I'm going to finish with some quickfire questions. A book that you've enjoyed and would most recommend? There's a couple of them, but the one that continuously comes to mind is—and forgive me—it's been a while since I read it, but I seem to continuously draw on the lessons learned. It's written by the former editor of Wired magazine, and oh goodness, I should know this. I didn't know the name. But it's just a fabulous look, you know, the macro trends that are reshaping the world of work and technology, and it's just such an insightful read that I keep going back to things that I read way back then, and I'm often reminded of them as as I do my own research. Very good. We'll put the book name on the show notes. The best life or career advice you were given, and by whom? Oh goodness, you know, probably two things. An old boss of mine said to me, you know. You haven't seen something at least three times in your life. You know you're not done yet, <laughs> and and he was absolutely right. It's interesting how things just come around, and you know that wonderful quote from Alvin Toffler just has continued to resonate with me, where he said, you know, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who can't read and write; it'll be those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. I think that is just such a, an insightful comment from back in 1970. Well, look, that was fantastic. It was great having you on, Raven. I'm left with a, a number of different kind of words. I'm ringing in my ears: perpetual obsolence, rapid prototyping, and the rules are all changing. And I think <laughs> these are the type of messages that we need to get through to people and organisations as we move in this ever-evolving world. So thanks, Raven, for your time, and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to the core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe, and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.